Today we're going to get back into our uh, study of John's gospel. We're in the end of John chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. These are two healing stories. The first one is Jesus healing a, a little boy who uh, his dad is a, an official. And the dad approaches Jesus and asks for his, uh, his son to be healed at the end of chapter 4. Then at the ch- in chapter 5, this is a full-grown man who has been paralyzed for 38 years unable to walk, and he meets Jesus. And so we're going to hear some stories here, learn some lessons for our lives and for our ministry as well. Jesus healing broken people, brokenness. So maybe today as we look at these stories, you'll see yourself in these stories at some point, or maybe you'll see the mission that God has for you to continue Jesus' healing ministry in the lives of someone else who's facing brokenness and pain. So here in John chapter 4, verse 46, we pick up the story. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. So obviously we're picking this up in the middle of a story. We've, uh, you know, the so he came should be an indication something has come before this. This is a part of Jesus' continuing healing ministry that we've seen here in chapter four. Earlier in chapter four was when Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well. And then at the very end of that story, we hear of a whole community who is coming to faith in Jesus partly because of the woman's testimony that he told me everything that I had ever done in my life. He told me, he knows everything about me. Could this be the Messiah? But then, more personally, they themselves hear Jesus' words and they recognize him as the Savior of the world. And so there is some belief there in the the region of Galilee and yet there's also this mixture of belief more so just in the signs and wonders You know, there's these people who are really excited about all the signs and wonders that Jesus is doing, and really they're putting their faith and their belief in the magical deeds that he's doing rather than in the heart and the essence of the one who has come to make all things new. And so there is a bit of a caution here, and, uh, you know, we see that right at the end of the the previous story there in chapter 4. But now we're, we're moving on and he's, he's continuing to Cana and Galilee. We've seen this already in John's Gospel. Chapter 2, the first public miracle that Jesus did at a wedding when he turned water into wine. He's moving back into this area and he gets to the city of Capernaum and there's this official whose son is ill. Uh, the official really is in contrast to the first character in John chapter 4. The Samaritan woman is at the very margin of society. She is the She's not only an outcast, but she's a low outcast in society, right? We talked a couple weeks ago about how the Samaritans were looked at. uh, There was some discrimination from the Jews toward the Samaritans. And on top of that, women were held in a low status and position at this time in history in this part of the world. And so she's doubly marginalized. And yet Jesus goes to her and he meets her. And he brings good news to her. And he gives her a taste of living water that will quench her deepest thirst forever. Not just uh, a cup of water for today, but the deepest cleansing that she needs for this life and the next that brings eternal life. And Jesus goes to that most outcast of the marginalized and he brings good news to her. Well, in contrast to that woman, this is now a person of importance, You know, this is an official, um, 
most likely a Jewish official by looking at the, the Greek word behind this, that he's probably serving Herod Antipas, if you dig into this a little bit more, which would make him a Jewish official. And yet he's an influential person, he's a powerful person, kind of along the lines of Nicodemus that we met in chapter 3. He was a powerful religious person. And so the, the, the beauty of the gospel is it's good news for the most marginalized at the, out, at the outcast, the fringe of society. It's also good news for the person of status and power and wealth. It's good news for everybody. And here this man comes to Jesus and all of his status, his title, his degrees, his income means nothing because his son is dying. And he comes to Jesus in desperation. And really, his title means nothing on this day. And he comes to Jesus because he heard, verse 47, he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee and he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you, and now the word there, maybe your version says, unless you people, because it's a plural you there, right? So unless you all, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. It's not just a pointed condemnation of this man who's coming to Jesus. It's really a blanket statement for all of the people in this region of Galilee. And it's what I had mentioned earlier. There's this caution against just going after the signs and wonders. So Jesus says, unless you see the signs and wonders, you will not believe. The beauty of this is that while there is a an inferior faith that only goes after the miracles and the signs and the wonders. There is a way that Jesus himself uses signs and wonders to draw people to himself. So there is a legitimate use of God's powerful work in the lives of individuals that Jesus at times uses to open people's eyes. And we'll see that later in John's gospel a couple of different times where he, he says, believe my words. But if not my words, at least believe the works. And so Jesus is okay with at times using this inferior faith, this maybe less mature faith that says, you know what, Jesus, I just can't take you at your word. I just can't believe what you're saying. Show me, and then I'll believe. And Jesus kind of, you know, you feel that with Thomas at the end, like we read on Easter Sunday, where he kind of, it's this exasperated sigh, like, okay, if you need to put your fingers in, in the holes in my hands, fine. But blessed are those who believe and have not seen. And so Jesus gives this bit of a rebuke to the man who's coming and asking for his son to be healed. Unless you all, all you Galileans, see the signs and wonders, you will not believe. But then the official says to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. You know, this, this man doesn't want to get into a bunch of Christology right now. You know, theology is the furthest thing from his mind. He's coming in desperation. He's just saying, I don't care about how you do it. I don't care about belief, faith. I'm just asking you, I've heard that maybe you do miracles. I need a miracle for my son right now. I'm, I'm desperate. And Jesus just says, go, your son will live. He doesn't reply to the request to come down to my house, go geographically down a hill, to, to the region of where my home is and heal my son. He says, no, you just go and your son will live. And here's the beautiful end of verse 50 that I love. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. 
You know, actually he does the opposite of what Jesus blanket condemned all of the Galileans for. He actually believed the word of Jesus. It wasn't the signs and the wonders that he saw that produced authentic faith for this man. He simply believed the words that Jesus spoke. And I wonder, for me, as as I'm reading this and thinking, how do we apply this to our lives as believers today reading this story? The, The prompting that I have is that we should believe what Jesus says. We should have that mature faith that says, Jesus, I, I'm going to believe you whether or not I see anything. The kind of faith that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had when they stepped into the fiery furnace in the book of Daniel. And they said, Nebuchadnezzar, our God is able to save us, but even if he doesn't, we won't bow down. That kind of faith that just puts faith in God for who he is, not in the works of his hands. Now, does that mean there are no miracles, there are no healings? Absolutely not. That's the beauty of it. That's the icing on the cake. That's the bonus that sometimes we get in this life. And yet our theology of healing must be melded together with a theology of suffering. There is a beautiful thing that God accomplishes in the lives of believers who endure hardship. And it's not all hardship. There are times when he supernaturally intervenes and moves on our behalf. And we see his glory revealed. And yet there's also times, beautiful times, that are painful. And that when you're going through it, it's not at all beautiful. But when you look back, you go, you know what? That suffering produced endurance. And that endurance produced character. And that character produced hope. And that hope does not disappoint me. Because it's hope in the living God who sees our suffering and walks with us through that journey. Or like Paul says, three times I pleaded that you would take this away. And, and what did God say? My grace is sufficient for you, Peter. For my power is made perfect in weakness. So for this man, he's coming with hope. He's just coming with a simple childlike prayer. I would say this is a good template for prayer for healing. Just cry out desperation. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to tack a lot of caveats on there. If you're praying for someone else, you don't have to say, God, I just pray that you'll heal this person. And if it's your will that they suffer in misery, then give them the endurance that they need. You don't need all that. Let God figure that out. Just ask a humble prayer of faith. God, I'm your child, and I'm just coming to you because I'm hurting, and I would really like to see you work in this situation. Here's what I would love to see happen. And then trust in him for the results. If he's going to lead you into an answer that's no, endure, he'll give you the strength and grace you need. But ask in faith, as this man did. And in this case, Jesus said, go, your son will live. There was a healing that came as a result of the plea, the prayer, the cry. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. How can we believe the word that Jesus speaks to us? Let me give you a clue. Open it up. Read it. If you don't know where to start, start in John's gospel. That's what we're reading together and working through together on Sunday mornings this summer. And you could read the whole book this week and it would take you maybe an hour or two. And you'd have a good overview of John's gospel. And as we're going through each of these stories along the way, it'll fit within the wider context of this story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And as you read 
read with that belief, that desire, that heart that says, I'm going to come believing that what God says is true, that God has given us his word, that he's speaking to you and I through his word today, that he's drawing us into a deeper faith and belief as we submit to him and to his word. And so the man believed, and then in verse 51, we we hear the end of the story. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. That, that belief, that faith was increasing because now, you know, really, really what Jesus said at the beginning was true, but it was true in a more beautiful way where it wasn't only because of the signs and wonders that he believed. He had believed Jesus' words, and now as he's seeing the personal miracle that God had for him, there's a deeper level of faith and belief Not just for him, but did you notice that last phrase? All his household. Did you know that God is after households? That God's vision is bigger than just a Jesus and me salvation experience? That God, as he drew you to himself, he had your whole family in mind. Husbands and wives and kids and grandkids and grandparents and parents and aunts and uncles and cousins. That's the kind of mindset that God has as he looks at you and your family. He's after households. You see that theme really played out in the book of Acts. That sphere of influence that tends to happen when that gospel message, that seed gets planted and it takes root and ripples out And it gets contagious and it draws people in. And just as he used the the faith of this one man who believed Jesus' words, he saw God working in his circumstance, it affected his family. He wants to do the same in your family. He's going to use your willing and faithful service to bring healing and life to families who are in brokenness and pain. Not just your family. But pray this summer that God will give you that kind of a vision that sees families in your area. Because as Americans, you know, we're very individualistic, right? You know, you could kind of take or leave your family, right? Uh, We just had the graduation of our oldest daughter from uh, Wheaton College last Sunday. And so Malika's here and Samee, they're planning on getting married in a couple months, starting a new family, which is exciting. But, you know, we've tried to raise our kids with this family mindset of, you know, we're not going to try to be the micromanaging, controlling parents that dictate every aspect of your lives. But we'd like to somehow be a family unit going forward even as you start your own family. I think that's the heart of God for the church and for us as we look at individuals, not just our own families, but Who's the family that lives across the street from you? What's the family next door? What's the key that God has for you to unlock with the gospel message to heal their brokenness and their pain, to see with God's eyes? Uh, I'll I'll share a bit of an an announcement here as we uh, prepare to get into chapter 5. 
We as a church, you know, a couple of weeks ago we had our family chat. We talked about some of the things that God is uh, bringing to the surface uh, as a congregation as we look at what's his call and his heart for our church this year. One of the things we looked at was just how are we going to reach families in our community? We live in the Cherry Creek School District. There's big houses being built because uh, of the reputation of our schools, which is awesome. Well, we meet in one of those schools, and in the last couple of weeks, we've learned that the, uh, the renovation that's going to happen in this building on the HVAC system is going to be pretty extensive. Uh, so they're doing a complete new uh, air conditioning system in here. This is going to be a construction zone over the summer. And so uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were, you know, the elders and then a couple other people from the congregation were looking at this like, what are we going to do? Are we going to just sweat this summer, tell people to wear shorts and T-shirts and bring, bring a fan or, um, you know, and maybe a dust mask? Um, kind of, you know, at first not being real happy about this and, and, and feeling uh, like it was a real negative. But then actually it was Brian who said, you know, maybe this is God leading us, giving us an opportunity uh, and, a, and a challenge and a calling this summer. You know, the school district was saying, well, you know, there are other schools that you guys could temporarily move to over the summer. And, you know, I get, maybe I'm just one of these people who doesn't like change. And I'm like, no, let's just, this is sweat and breathe in dust. It'll be fine. Um, but we decided to go look at a few of the area schools. Some, you know, and now there's challenges because we've got these gigantic carts full of all this sound equipment that you're trying to get in. And is there a place that you can load that so we don't have, you know, everybody in the congregation having to carry a speaker in to get, you know, up flights of stairs and whatnot. So there's that. Um, also, location, like we don't want to move so far away that it's too far for pe- people from our church to drive to for, for church. So we looked at Eagle Crest. We looked at the middle school that you could, it's right across the football field here from uh, Liberty Middle School. Um, we looked at Pine Ridge Elementary and then Peakview Elementary. And of those, um, really, the, for various reasons, Pine Ridge Elementary looked, looks very promising. And so, you know, we've got a couple of our ladies from church that work there. Stephanie Taft is a teacher there. Jeannie Laurie works there, so they're familiar with the buildings. If you don't know where it is, it's right by the Lowe's at Southlands. It's just right around the corner there. Um, so that looks like it could be a good opportunity for us for this summer. But as I'm thinking about this story of this official and his entire household being affected by the work of God in his life, I'm thinking about, you know, could it be that God has orchestrated this opportunity for our congregation so that there's a whole new neighborhood driving by the Way Church signs this summer. And there's opportunities for us to do outreach right there in that community for a period of time this summer and to have a, a presence there in that neighborhood. Could that be part of God's plan that there's some families in that area that we can be a blessing to and do a, do a church picnic? You know, out, Actually, it's also right next door to the Wheatlands Community Center uh, where Don Brueger uh, hosted the Asia Team Report a couple weeks ago. So that's a great facility for just walk out of church and go over and do a, a church picnic. So there's some good opportunities. We're, I'm not ready to announce a date or a time yet because it's going to be uh, figured out this summer. But I do ask, or uh, this week, sorry, I do ask that you be in prayer uh, about direction for this summer and how God will lead us and specifics on how to all, make that all happen. And if you've got ideas, thoughts, Give me a call, grab me after church, send an email. 
whatever, and, and we'd like to put that into the mix. So, all right. I almost feel like I should like open it up for Q&A, but we're in the middle of a sermon, so let's keep going here. All right, you could talk to me after church. Okay, so that story ends, and this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. That puts it, connects it up with that story of the water to wine at Cana that we had read about in chapter 2. We're going to end with this story. Now, in chapter 5, there's a, a, a real uh, abrupt switch in the attitude of the religious leaders to the ministry of Jesus. Up to this point, the Jewish religious leaders have been looking at Jesus' ministry and hearing his words. They've been listening with skepticism, with some kind of doubt, some questioning. In chapter 5, it takes a turn for the worse, and, and it becomes very antagonistic, violent, oppositional, and that's the movement that we get now as we go into chapter 5. But it starts with a beautiful story of a healing. Here we are. After, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up into Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Beth, Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, your Bible may have a footnote here with verse 4. Uh, it's not in the text of my Bible, but it's down in the footnote. So I'm going to read what it says in the footnote and explain why it's footnoted and not included up in the main text. So here's what verse 4 says. Some manuscripts insert wholly or in part, waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water, Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Now, this maybe text criticism is probably something that, you know, you haven't studied a whole lot or dabbled in because it's not an issue today. We, we perfectly transmit text in this day and age. If, I, if you want a copy of my sermon notes, I can email you the Word document and be assured that you'll get every letter and punctuation point exactly as I typed it. Every typographical error, every misspelled word, every disjointed thought will be right there on your computer screen and you can print out as many copies as you want and every one will be perfect. But at a different time in history when you're dealing with animal skins and ink on animal skins, um, you know, you don't just throw that away and start over. You cross stuff out and write in the margin if you make a mistake. It, it takes a while to, to, to get that, uh, that medium ready. And there's scribes that are having to handwrite every single copy of Scripture in the first century. And they are meticulous, trained professionals that count the number of letters on a, on a sheet and they double check and check and triple check and make sure that they don't make errors and they're highly motivated to get it right. So it's a beautiful process if you look at text criticism and yet there are some times where you have some variant manuscripts and, and this is one of those examples where some of those, those manuscripts that we have of John chapter 5 have verse 4, others do not. And so now today, if you're in the field of biblical text criticism, you're trying to sort out which is the earliest and most reliable manuscript. We don't have the first copy that John wrote. It's not in existence today. So what's the one closest to that? And as they make that decision process using stuff that you could go get a master's degree in how to do it, they, they determine that it's likely that verse 4 was added in later. 
So for whatever reasons, you know, I could, I'm not going to get into it today, but if you're really a nerd, we could, we could dig into that together, do a little text criticism on John 5 verse 4. Despite that, it's in the footnotes because it, it gives us some good idea as to why did some scribe add this in. It gives some historical context as to what's going on at this pool of Siloam. And it fits in with the rest of the story here. So I think it's helpful to read that and include that today. So there, there, are, there are a whole pool, a whole area next to this pool full of people who are blind, lame, and paralyzed. And there's an expectation that there is some formula for healing that happens at this pool. Something with the water stirring and if you're the first one to get in, there's the expectation that that's the correct formula in order to be healed. That's why people are gathered there. Well, one of these people, in verse 5, was a man who was there and had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? 38 years, this man's been putting futile hope in this pool of water. And really, there's echoes of some other water that we've seen in John's gospel, the the purification jars in John 2 that were insufficient to really purify. And yet Jesus comes to start a whole new party and he transforms those jars of water into wine and the real wedding feast begins. Or the woman in chapter 4 who's there at Jacob's well and she's been drawing water. And Jesus says, if you, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for water and I'd give you living water. Oh, are you greater than Jacob? You know, this is his well. This is our ancestor's well. <laughs> oh yeah. This is water that you will never thirst from. Again, if you, if you drink of this. And here once again, there, there's this man and a whole group of people, but this one man, 38 years, he's been putting faith in this formula that he's hoping will bring healing, and yet 38 years later, there he is, lying there, unable to walk. And Jesus comes as the only one who heals, as the only one who gives living water, as the only one who purifies from sin. And he asks him this simple question, do you want to be healed? As we've seen elsewhere, Jesus is speaking in a heavenly way, in a supernatural way. But once again, this guy just hears it in an earthly, natural way. And Jesus is asking a deep, profound question. Do you want to be healed? And he's only looking at, yeah, I want to get up off this mat. That's why I'm here. And that's his response. The man recites the formula, right? Do you want to be healed? And, and he says, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. You know, the verse 4 that we read said the first one who gets in there, the first one who steps in there, is the one who gets healed after the angels stir up the water. Right? This is their formula for healing. Well, how, how are you going to step in there when you're paralyzed? You know, somebody else has a different ailment. They can still walk and get in there ahead of you. And you're always the second or third person in. You never make it in time. There's no one to carry him into the water. And so he gives Jesus the formula for healing that he's been banking on for 38 years. 
If I can just, if I just do it right, if I just say the right thing, if I go through the right motions, then this is going to happen. And Jesus just takes the formula, says, okay, thank you, we don't need that. And he tosses that healing formula away and he heals him anyway. And he just simply commands and says, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. This is a powerful command from Jesus, get up. We'll see this next week as we get into the rest of chapter 5. But I'll just read a couple verses because this is a preview of that command coming out of Jesus' mouth at the end of time. A getting up for all those who are alive at this time and who have lived at all times in history. Here's what it says in verse 28. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. There is going to be a booming command at some point in our future of Jesus saying, get up and everyone will rise to judgment or to blessing. And we have the opportunity right now today to live as those followers of the one true king right in the middle of history, resurrection people while we're still alive who are already hearing him say, get up. And we're living and following after him and obeying his commands. And this man in chapter 5 is a preview of what's to come at the end. Get up, take up your bed and walk. And this man at once was healed He stands up. This thing that he's been laying on, dragging his body onto for 38 years, he now just rolls it up and carries it. And he starts walking around carrying this thing that used to be the symbol of his paralysis, his disability, his inability. And that very action is what escalates the tension between Jesus and the religious leaders. So here we get to the next, the next, uh, the, the last paragraph of this story. Now that day was the Sabbath. It was the seventh day of the week, the day that you rest. You know, in seven, in six days the Lord God created the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day He rested. It's a commandment from the Old Testament, and so it was the Sabbath day. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, "It is the Sabbath." And it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Well, you know, these, these Jewish leaders, they, they had a fun time of, of adding extra layers and requirements onto what was in the Old Testament. So really the heart of that Sabbath command was that you don't do your normal work on the Sabbath. And you prepare in advance so that that day is set apart as holy. Right? So if, you're, if you need to cook food, if you're celebrating the Sabbath on Sunday, you plan ahead and you get a crockpot meal ready Saturday night. That way, on Sunday, you're not slaving in the kitchen all day because that's what you have to do the other six days out of the week. And if your normal job is carrying beds around, maybe you work for Denver Mattress Company, right? You don't do that on the Sabbath day because that's your normal six days a week job. This is a day set apart to serve the Lord. Well, they, these Jewish leaders, they turned this into an art form. And they would, they would make real fine points 
of what is work and what's not work, what is obedience to the Sabbath and what's a violation of the Sabbath. And you could walk a certain number of steps, but if you walked one more step than that, now it became work. And they classified this action of this man picking up the mat as work. And they're saying, you've broken the Sabbath. Talk about missing it, right? This man has just been healed. 38 years he's been paralyzed and he's encountered Jesus. He's been made whole. He's been healed. He's been cleansed. He's been restored. And they're worried about him carrying a bed. What a tragedy. What an inability to see Jesus working and moving in their day. And, and you know, this guy, again, he's not a theologian. He doesn't have a good uh, understanding of exactly what's happening here. And so now he's having a dialogue with these really smart religious leaders who have a, an extensive list of do's and don'ts of what can happen on the Sabbath. And so he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. I, I mean, I, sorry, I didn't mean to break the Sabbath. I just, I was paralyzed for 38 years and a guy healed me and he said, take up your bed. And so I did. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. So he couldn't answer their question. But then Jesus went and found him again. In verse 14. Found him in the temple afterward and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. So there is a connection here in this verse between the man's suffering and sin. You know, this is one of the formulas that some Christians use to beat up other Christians, sadly. Why are you suffering and you've been praying and God hasn't healed you? Maybe you have sin in your life. Right? That's one of them. Maybe you don't have enough faith. Maybe you didn't pray in just the right way. Maybe you didn't go to the person who can pray in just the right way so that you get healed at the right time in the right location. And we've got our own formulas today, don't we? And so despite that unfortunate fact that there are people who use your sin as part of the equation, the formula for your healing, the fact is that really all suffering comes from sin. If it weren't for Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, there would be no suffering today. And so indirectly, all suffering has its root and origin in sin. Not only that, but we've seen in practice and in the example of this man in chapter 5, often my own particular sin is connected with my own particular suffering. Has anyone else beside me seen this to be true in your life? You were the person who sped and then you got pulled over and had to go to court and pay a fine, right? You were the one who you know, had, had one too many before you got behind the wheel. And then your name got in the paper and you suffered because of it, right? So there is often a connection between your particular sin and the suffering that you experience. That suffering is just a symptom of the root cause of sin. Sin is at the, at the root, at the, at the very heart. And so Jesus comes to this man, not in condemnation, but just in caution and in warning. For some reason, whatever had put this man on the mat was somehow connected with his sin. I don't know. I don't, know. I don't, I don't have any more detail than that, other than that Jesus says, go and sin no more. 
So there's some connection between this particular healing and some sin in this man's past that Jesus is cautioning about. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. I don't think he has malicious intent. He's just ignorant. You know, he's just a simple guy that, you know, well, who was it that told you? To, I, don't, I don't even know. Oh, wait, I found him. I just met him and he talked to me about my sin issue, the root cause of my suffering, not just the superficial thing of just a mere 38 years paralyzed, but the real heart of what I really need, that sin issue in my heart that ripples out and affects my body and my days, my short days on this earth. And he doesn't have that all figured out and yet he points the Jewish leaders toward Jesus. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. It wasn't that Jesus picked up the mat and violated the Sabbath, but he instructed someone else to. So they begin to persecute him and there's increasing opposition. But listen to what Jesus answers to them in in, in response to the persecution that they're directing toward him. My father is working until now and I am working. Maybe for you that sentence doesn't mean a whole lot. It's kind of an enigma. Like, well, what does he mean by that? For the Jewish leaders, it meant something because look at the next verse. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. So something in that enigmatic statement that we just read was enough to make them go from opposing and persecuting to we want to kill you. So there's something in that statement that's very powerful that maybe goes over our head because we're like, oh, okay, God, God's working and, and I'm working. Well, what's, why would you want to kill somebody over that statement? There's more explanation there in our last verse. We're going to look at verse 18. Seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. We'll hear more about that next week as we look at the red letter section at the end of chapter 5. But here you have Jesus that's really digging into some weighty theological matters. There's debate among Jewish scholars. Does God himself break the Sabbath? Okay, you know, in six days, you go back and read the book of Genesis. God created everything in six days and on the seventh day, he rested. So the question is, as you look at the rest of the Bible, we're in the seventh day, right? He's no longer creating creation. He's done with that, so we're in the seventh day. But isn't God still at work? Isn't he still sovereignly superintending his creation today? Isn't he ruling over like a king does his creation to this day? Well, absolutely. God is still at work. And so however, you know, God is enabled to, in a sense, break the Sabbath and yet still be the faithful God who is the giver of the Sabbath. That's something you can wrestle with. And Jesus is saying, Whatever justification you have for God continuing to work at this time in history, that same justification applies to me and to my ministry. And that statement is blasphemous enough that it causes the Jewish leaders to say, you've got to die. You're equating yourself with God. 
You're not only breaking the Sabbath, but you're saying that you are justified to break the Sabbath for the same reason that God is justified to continue his work of caring for and nurturing his creation at this time in in history. You're calling yourself God. And this is where it gets exciting as we'll go forward next week. If there's ever anyone who says to you, there, there are some people who go around and knock on doors and profess a religion that minimizes the divinity of Jesus. And they will claim, if you, if you sit down and talk to them, they'll claim and say, Jesus himself never claimed to be God. Take them to this passage. In this passage, when you have Jewish religious leaders saying, we need to kill you because of what you just said, this is a clear profession that Jesus is saying I am God and so that that throws out the Jehovah's Witness teaching on that on that point you may not convince them to come to Jesus with that argument Uh, you're probably better off sitting with them many times and uh, and digging into God's word together which I encourage you to do as well well, we're going to wrap it up today and I'd like to, I'd like to open it up for prayer because today maybe you are like the person who is in need of Jesus to just intervene. You don't have the, the healing formula. You're just coming in desperation and saying, God, I need you. Jesus, I need you to work in this situation. We're going to pray together with that simple faith that says, God, please work in this situation. Maybe today you're going, no, that, that's actually not me. But I know somebody who's in that boat right now. I've got a neighbor. I have a coworker, I have a family member. I'm going to pray for you today that God will enable you to carry on this ministry of Jesus who promised us that we'll do these things and even greater things because his spirit is within us. And that God will enable you to point someone to the word of Jesus and maybe even see a sign or a wonder uh, for those who need that and God chooses to work in that way that God will use you in that way to reach households for him. And finally, maybe today you're like the man who your mat was taken up. Uh, you, You took up your mat, you were healed, you're able to walk. And yet Jesus comes back to you and he's dealing with that sin issue. And he's saying to you today for the first time, today's the day that it's not just about pursuing that sign or wonder. Today is the day that you experience that radical healing that goes to the very root problem, your sin issue that separates you from God, that causes all kinds of pain in your life and in the lives of others. And today is the day for you to meet Jesus and have him speak his truth to you, prepare you for that final day when he says, get up, and we all stand before him in judgment. And today you can have the confidence to know that when he says that, it will be a day of joy a day of salvation for you because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And there's no striving, trying, there's no formula that you need to fulfill. He's paid the price and he's done it all. And so today I'm gonna pray for those that need that assurance, that confidence, that today is that day that you surrender fully to him. Why don't we stand together and I'm gonna ask you um, maybe to just respond, take a little bit of faith today. There was some courage required by that Roman official who went and found Jesus and he, and he sought him out and he said, come heal my son. There was a risk that he took. So I'm going to ask you today to raise your hand if, if you have a, a need, an issue of healing for you or for a family member that we can, without 
having you call it out, but just, yep, raise your hand up, and we're going to pray together as a body today, okay? All right? And maybe, maybe now raise your hand if you have someone else in mind, a neighbor, a coworker, a family member. We're going we're gonna to pray for them and ask that God will use you to carry that out. Good. And then finally, maybe today you just need that assurance of your sins forgiven and that cleansing that you're prepared for the return of the king today and you need that hope and that joy that comes with that message. Raise your hand if that's the category that you're in. Okay, good. Well, thank you for taking a risk. That's, that can be intimidating to do that publicly, but I think it's a way of us living as God's people. Why don't we now, why don't you grab hands with somebody that's near you and let's pray together. This isn't just me praying, but this is something for us to do together as we go before the king. God, we thank you for the great love that you have for us. We thank you for the healing that is in you. We thank you for the miraculous touch of your hand. Thank you that you're still in the business of doing signs and wonders and miracles today. God, we want to be among those who have genuine faith, not just seeking your hand, not just seeking what you can do for us to fix this temporary struggle or pain or sorrow that we're in. But Lord, we want to open our hearts up to you and allow you to do that root level, deep work of cleansing and healing our sin problem, to trust in you as the one who restores and redeems, the ones who hear your word and believe. And then that begins a process of reaching our household, our family, and other families that you put us in contact with. God, today I pray for those in this room that are suffering. And they're coming to you in desperation today. And they're just crying out like the official, heal my son, or like the man on the mat who for 38 years lay paralyzed. And they're just saying, please, heal me. God, I pray that in your mercy and in your grace and for your glory, you would do that healing work. Lord, for others who have someone in mind as we're reading through these stories and seeing your healing touch, I pray that you'd use them to carry on your work and your ministry, that they would bring that healing and joy that comes in turning to you and having lives restored and having brokenness repaired. Not just at the physical level and the natural level, but at the the heart level as well. And finally, God, for the, the, the people in the room here today who who are still, they're carrying their mat and yet they're still worried about that sin issue and maybe they're seeking a formula to be forgiven. That God, today they would have the liberating knowledge that you have finished the work on the cross. That the price has been fully paid, that they are cleansed and made new in you. And Lord, as we prepare for uh, a baptism service next weekend, celebrating with those who have moved from death to life and those who have identified with you, in your suffering and now obey that command to make a public confession of that private experience with you. May that be a time of joy for our congregation as we go forward. We thank you for your work in our hearts and lives. We thank you for your soon return. When you, when you speak with that voice of authority, get up and all raise before you for salvation and judgment. Thank you that we know if we're in you, which side we will be on as your sons and daughters. Give us that joy and confidence today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd encourage you, too, to put it into practice. Maybe grab somebody that you saw raise a hand this morning and say, hey, can I pray with you personally before we go? 
we've got that opportunity as God's people right here today. God bless you. We'll see you next week back here, not at Pine Ridge yet, pending further confirmation.